Well, good evening. Welcome to the mine. All right, glad to have you. Uh, I know y'all are jealous of the fifth and sixth graders over there. They're going to have a wild time tonight. Um, hey, before I forget, there's some real good homemade goodies back there in the corner. So grab yourself some stuff uh, on the way out. All right, if not on the way in. A um, couple of things. Just a reminder. Don't forget that we don't meet next Tuesday because it's the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, the 21st, but then we come back and we meet three more times this year. We meet the 28th of November, the 5th of December, and the 12th of December. So hang in there with me. We got three more after tonight, the 28th of November, 5th of December, 12th of December, and those are going to be in the book of Jude. You're going to want to be here for those, all right? So, uh, hope you can make it back out. Again, if you know some folks that are looking to study the Word of God, we'd love to have them uh, out. Next year, we've got some cool things coming in the mind, too, that we're going to be telling you more about at the end of this year before we start back up next year. So, we got some cool things going. And uh, don't forget to vote. If you haven't been on the website, to vote on which book you would like to study next year at least in the springtime, we've got that poll gone, and whichever one of those books wins, that's the book we'll study, all right? So uh, get on there, and if you need to get on the website and you don't know how or whatever, please see Mike. Mike is our web guy for the mine, all right? And he'll help you with that. Oh, all right, papers are back there on that offering obelisk. Uh... Pick one out. Pick one up on your for the website. Yeah, sorry. All right. Wow. It's been an interesting couple days. We had our Vision Arizona golf tournament yesterday to raise money to plant churches, and that went very well. But uh, I got up at 4 o'clock yesterday morning and had a very long day and then back up early again this morning. So if I seem even more weird than what I usually do... It's just lack of sleep and not enough caffeine, all right? So that's cool. All right. They're going to be calming down in just a few minutes, all right? If not, I'll send my wife out there and she'll, you'll take care of Jeff, won't you? Yeah. All right. Second Peter chapter 3. Lord willing, we're going to finish up Second Peter tonight. And then, like I said, the last three weeks we meet will be in the book of Jude. Second Peter chapter 3. All right, just quickly, for those of you that have not been here, again, every week can stand on its own. The book of Second Peter is encouraging us to grow as Christians because the Christian life is not static. We never stay the same. We're either moving forward in our relationship with God or we're moving backward, but we're never staying the same. And throughout the book of Second Peter, he's giving us reasons why Growing is so important, and if we stop growing and moving backward, all the things we're going to encounter when we do that. Uh, He talked about becoming spiritually nearsighted in chapter 1. In chapter 2, we talked about the fact that there's these false teachers and all this false teaching out there that we can succumb to if we don't keep growing and keep understanding the Word of God better in order to combat, combat all the false teaching and false teachers. Well, in 2 Peter chapter 3, he goes a little step further. 
He says, not only do we need to keep growing for all those reasons and more, but we're living in the last days. And those days are very unique. Alright? They're great days to be alive. But they also present some unique challenges to those of us who follow Christ. And one of the things that is brought up is the fact that there's going to be more and more what the Bible calls scoffers or mockers, if you will. Those who attack the Bible, those who attack God, those who attack the credibility of the Bible. In fact, even just last night, I was watching MSNBC about 9.30 at night. Maybe some of you caught this. And one of the guys that they were interviewing last night was saying that they, they definitely have proof that there is a rise in America today in atheism. That more and more people are at least out there saying, oh yeah, I'm an atheist. And atheism is becoming more and more popular. It's growing, whatever. Uh, doesn't surprise me. Uh, in fact, that's what we're going to be, one of the things we're going to be talking about. Uh, you know, atheists at least say they believe what they can't know that they believe or not. And agnostics don't know what they believe. They just, you know. So anyway, but here's where I want to start tonight. The important thing is that there's a phrase, and when we study the Bible, as I've shared with you before, one of the keys in studying the Bible and getting main points and main things that God wants to say to us is when you see something repeated over and over again in a passage or a chapter. And 2 Peter 3 is no different. I want you to see with me a phrase that Peter continues to use throughout 2 Peter 3. And the reason he uses this phrase over and over is because he wants us to get it. Because he thinks it's very important. Very first two words of chapter 3. Dear friends. Or in other translations, beloved. Alright? In fact, that's what the original language means. It means be loved. Know that you are loved and allow God to love you. Allow His love to wrap around you. Allow Him to love you. You know, there's a lot of people out there in the world today who God wants to love and they don't want any part of it. Just like sometimes there are people in their lives that want to love them, but they don't want any part of it. And He's saying, dear friends, be... Now I realize beloved is one word, but in this... Be loved. (laughs) Allow yourself to be loved by God. Notice in chapter 3, verse 8. Same word in the Greek. Now, dear friends, beloved ones of God. Then over in chapter uh, 3, verse 14. Therefore, dear friends. And then in chapter 3, verse 17. Therefore, dear friends. Four times in chapter 3, Peter says, I want you to nail something down. Those of you who are living in the last days, more than ever, you've got to nail down God loves you. And and you gotta you gotta let God love you, and you gotta accept God's love. You gotta be loved, you see. You've gotta let God love you. And there's a little play on words there, because back in the book of Exodus, the whole I am that I am literally means to be. And so, be loved is God loving you. Letting God's love wrap around you. So again, so important. Because one of the things that even followers of Christ sometimes can struggle with is God loving them. 
and really wrapping their mind around the fact that God loves them unconditionally. And that as they move through these difficult times in their life and difficult times in the world in which we live, sometimes we forget God loves us. Or we look around at all the things that's going on in the world and think, God, how can God love you know, me and, and all of that? And so Peter, from the very beginning in chapter 3, just emphasized that over and over and over again throughout chapter 3. Keep focusing on the fact that God loves you. And by faith, accept His love. Trust in His unconditional love for you throughout these difficult days, if you will. Then, back to chapter 3, verse 1. This is already, Peter said, the second letter I've written you. Obviously, the first one was 1 Peter in which I am trying to stir up your pure mind by way of reminder. Now this is the second time in 2 Peter he's talked about stirring up Christians. And it's just a reminder there that all of us need every once in a while to be stirred up in our spirit, to be stirred up spiritually, because we can tend to get lethargic, comfortable, complacent, neglectful of our spiritual walk with God and of our spiritual duties and whatever, and... and you know, f- familiarity breeds contempt. And Peter is saying, guys, I need to every once in a while stir you up. You need to allow God to stir you up. And notice he says to stir you up by way of reminder. Again, we've talked about this, the importance of the fact that a lot of times it's not learning something new that's going to stir me up. It's hearing something that I already know but have neglected. I put it on the back burner. I'm not focusing on that right now. And so God's going to remind me that, oh, yeah, yeah, I need to, I need, I, I'm neg- I've been neglecting that. You know, and just for an example, like if somebody gave a message on prayer, and, and your prayer life has really went tanking lately. All of a sudden, it's like, yeah, man, I, I need to make prayer more of a priority in my life. That's stirring up by way of reminder. But then also, notice he says, stirring up your pure mind. I just want to say this, because most of us, especially in this day and age, when we think of anything about purity, we think about moral purity. But that's not what this word means, pure. It means undiluted. It means unmixed. In other words, a mind that is focused. A single mind. He's saying, I want to stir up your your single-minded mind, if you will. Because what he's pointing out here is the importance of not being double-minded. And we know that James, in James chapter 1, verse 8, talks about how bad it is to be double-minded. That, you know, oh, my mind is with God one day and then my mind's in the world or in the gutter the next day. And, and, and James is saying, boy, that's a tough way to live. You see, double-minded, double-souled, if you will. Not pure mind. Got too much dilution in there. Not, not singly focused on God, all right? In fact, Jesus even said, he said, listen, no man can serve two masters, no man can serve two masters. Either you've got to go after one and, and let the other go or whatever. So again, that, that's what he's going at when he's talking about pure mind. And then he says this. I want you in verse 2 to recall both the predictions, the Old Testament prophecies foretold by the holy prophets. So there he's referring to the Old Testament and saying, I want you to get into the Old Testament. I want you to study it 
because a lot of what's going to stir you up and remind you of things is going to be in the Old Testament. So one of the questions we got at the question and answer thing was, is study the Old Testament beneficial? It sure is. In fact, one of the reasons why we're doing this epic series is to show people that you and I can learn so much from the lives of Bible characters in the Old Testament. Sometimes what to do, sometimes what not to do. Like Balaam on Sunday. But the key is we can learn so much from the Old Testament. Don't just be a New Testament person. Start in the New Testament if you're a young Christian. But eventually graduate to studying the Old Testament as well. And then, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So there's the New Testament. So he says, look... You, as you study the Old Testament and as you study the New Testament, God can stir up your pure mind, your genuine mind, your sincere mind, the mind that is singly focused on Him by way of reminder. And that's where it all starts. What's the focus of our mind? And remembering that one of the focuses of our mind needs to be, God loves me. And God loves me unconditionally. And God will always love me. And God can never love me any more than He does today, and He'll never love me any less than He does today. Because God's love for me has been constant and consistent from before I was even born. That's God's love. That is God's love. The kind of love that's willing to sacrifice even Himself on the cross. That's how much love. So, remember that, folks. Now, in the context of that, now notice verse 3. Above all, Or first, understand this. In the last days, blatant scoffers will come. And the word scoffer speaks, first of all, about the attitude of the person scoffing. And it's talking about somebody who's very prideful, first of all. And a scoffer or a mocker in the Bible is someone who looks down on people who believe in God and believe the Bible. Uh, in fact, the guy on MSNBC last night says, yes, I, I realize that there is no such thing as God, and I can see more and more Americans are getting past that. They have intellectually bypassed that, that, that they don't need God anymore in their life, and that's a good thing. And I was like, whoa, you know. But here's the key. It's not really all about intellect. And this is where God opens up the door of their heart and shows us what's really driving them. Though they want to come across as very intelligent, intellectual people who have discovered there's no God because they're so smart and those of us who believe in God are just dumb, okay? But here's what's really motivating them. These scoffers will come, notice verse 3, being propelled by their own evil urges. In other words, it's really their lifestyle of sin that they want to hold on to that's going to bring them intellectually to a point where they kick God out of their mind and say, there is no God. Because remember something, and we're going to get to this in just a moment. Here's the deal. They want to live their life the way they want to live their life. They don't want God or anybody else telling them what to do and what not to do. And because they want to hold on to sin, and they want to continue to live their life in that lifestyle, the thing that they need to get rid of is the fact that there's a God, first of all, that they're going to be accountable to at any point, and that that God has moral absolutes, 
and that, that there's going to be even a day of accountability or judgment coming down. So if they just kick God out of their mind and say there's no God, then they can live their life however they want to. And at least at this point in their life, not even have to worry about it. They don't have to deal with that. They don't have to deal with the fact that they may have to stand before God one day and give an account for their life. If they kick God out and say there is no God, that's a way around it. So notice as he goes on in verse 4, here's one of the things they always say, especially in the days in which we live. Where is his promised return? For ever since our ancestors died, all things have continued as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, I've heard you Christians talk about Jesus coming, Jesus coming, Jesus hasn't come, Jesus isn't going to come, he's never going to come, he's not God, he's never coming back, and don't you Christians realize that ever since the beginning of time, everything's just went along just as it always has? Don't you, you Christians, don't you get this? Where's your mind, where's your intelligence, and all of that? Well, first of all, Again, remember, the motivation here is not intellect. It's actually sin and their sinful lifestyle that's driving them to adopt this belief. Because again, going back to Lynn's series, their beliefs are going to affect their decisions, which have outcomes. So if they want to live a certain way, then they've got to have beliefs that line up with but a, a way to allow them to live that way and not have to face any consequences for it. So obviously, one of the things they're going to ridicule is the coming of the Lord. And they're going to question it. And they're going to say, for thousands of years, everything's just continued as it was. Now, here's the thing. First of all, that's not true, is it? I mean, even in creation... God stepped into the chaos and created order out of chaos with His Word. That's what creation was. Everything was without form and void, Genesis says, and God spoke and He created order out of all this chaos, without form, without void. And then, again, they conveniently forget that God intervened in history over and over and over again. And let's just talk about Christmas. Has everything just continued without God intervening in human history? No. God, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, sent forth His Son into the world at an appointed time. So the whole Christmas story is God just didn't sit up there and if there is a God, just wound everything up and just let it go and has never intervened in history. I mean, we see God intervening in history all the time. All right? But here's the thing, verse 5. For they deliberately, and here's the key, they deliberately, they willfully suppress this fact. What facts are they willfully suppressing? That by the word of God, heavens existed long ago and and an earth was formed out of water and by means of water. So the first thing they suppress is creation. They can't believe in creation. Because again, to believe in creation then buys into the fact that there's a creator. So that's why they have to believe in evolution and throw the whole creation thing out the window. And they willfully suppress the facts that clearly show that there's a creator. I mean, again, it's not that God hasn't given facts to back up that there's a creator out there. 
you see, so that I as a Christian don't have to, you know, enter into a conversation with somebody and feel like I've committed, you know, intellectual suicide by following God somehow and checked my brain out at the door. There's a lot of facts to believe in creation. They're all there. They just willfully choose to ignore those, you know, and, and not to look at those, all right? So the thing is, when people doubt, your doubts and my doubts can fall into several different categories. First of all, there are people who suffer from factual doubt, meaning that the reason they doubt is they just don't know the facts, and if, they, if you present them the facts, then they're fine. That's factual doubt. Most people don't suffer at that level, it doesn't mean we don't experience factual doubts. It just means we don't suffer at that level. More people suffer at the emotional doubt level where they know the fact about something, but they're struggling emotionally to buy into it at that moment. A lot of people struggle there. And then here's where these people are. There's that volitional doubt, meaning the facts are there. It has nothing to do with their emotions. It has more to do with their will. They don't want to believe it. So they just choose to suppress it, to ignore it, to try to say it isn't there. That's where these people are. The second thing they suppress is after God created the world, He judged the world. Verse 6. Through these things, the world existing at that time was destroyed when it was deluged with water. Alright? So they deny the fact of creation. They deny the fact of a worldwide flood. And I'm going to get to that in just a moment. And then verse 7 they deny the fact of future judgment. By the same word, the present heavens and earth, in other words, by the same word that created the first judgment, the worldwide flood, that same word, the word of God, has these present heavens and earth reserved for fire by being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And they deny that. Now, a couple things. One, 2 Peter chapter 3, 7 should alleviate any Christian's fears that God's going to allow this world to be blown up before He's done with it. Because 2 Peter 3, 7 says, God has reserved this present heaven and this present earth for His purposes. So don't get worried out there. And, and people shouldn't have been worried back in the 60s when Nikita Khrushchev came and pounded his, his you know, shoe at the UN thinking somehow Russia and the United States are going to blow each other off the map and the whole world's going to be blown up. That was never going to happen. Why? Because God wasn't going to let it happen. Because if people would have known their Bible, even Christians, they would have known 2 Peter 3, 7, and they would have known that God's going to preserve this heaven. Now that doesn't mean there's not going to be war. That doesn't not mean that there's not going to be rumors of war. But God's not going to let us all be blown up by some nuclear holocaust. It's going to kill everybody on the planet because he's got plans for this planet, as I've said before. So again, it just goes back to the fact if you know the word of God and you know what the Bible says, you can alleviate a lot of worry and a lot of panic and a lot of stress from people's lives if they would just learn their Bible and know their Bible. Instead of sitting there fretting that the whole world's going to be blown apart, they can rest in the Word of God and know, no, it ain't going to happen. It's not going to happen. But here's the other thing. Today, in our day and age, scoffers and mockers are really attacking not just the fact of a worldwide flood, that that's all just a big story, but okay, if there was a flood, it wasn't worldwide. It was just a local flood confined to somewhere around Mesopotamia 
where Noah and his family were living at the time. Well, I want to look just for a few moments tonight at the problems just this concept of a local flood rather than a worldwide flood involved. Because, Lisa, remember this, our very first Bible study we had here at Cornerstone, I, I, and I shouldn't be this way, we were sitting around a table with several couples on our Friday night Bible study, and one of the girls in the group was just, she was just adamant that Noah's flood was not a worldwide flood, it was local. And I was like, you're kidding me. I mean, I was trying not to be like, are you kidding me? You know how when somebody's telling you something, it's just shocking you, and you're just trying not to let it you know, affect your facial expressions and stuff? And I'm sure I just like, like you really believe? I mean, I, you know, I was trying not to, I was trying to be nice and stuff. And I wasn't going to, you know, try to shoot her down or anything like that. I just sort of let her talk, and then I just tried to say the truth. But anyway, here's the problems with this whole local thing. If the flood was local, why did Noah have to build an ark? He could have walked to the other side of the mountains and missed it. Two, if the flood was local, why did God send the animals to the ark so they would escape death? There would have been other animals to reproduce that kind if these particular ones had died. Three, if the flood was local, why was the ark big enough to hold all kinds of land vertebrate animals that have ever existed? If only Mesopotamian animals were aboard, the ark could have been much smaller. Four, if the flood was local, why would birds have been sent on board? These could simply have winged across to a nearby mountain range and missed the flood. Five. If the flood was local, how could the waters rise to eight meters above the mountains, which is recorded in Genesis chapter 7, verse 20, if you doubt it? Water seeks its own level. It couldn't rise to cover the local mountains while leaving the rest of the world untouched. Six, if the flood was local, people who did not happen to be living in the vicinity would not be affected by it. They would have escaped God's judgment on sin. If this happened, then what did Christ mean when he likened the coming judgment of all men to the judgment of all men in the days of Noah? A partial judgment in Noah's day means a partial judgment to come. And finally, if the flood was local, God would have repeatedly broken his promise never to send such a flood again. Because remember, every time we see a rainbow out there, it is a reminder to us that God said, I will never destroy the entire world by flood. Well, there's been lots of floods. I mean, those of us in America know the whole Katrina thing and all those huge floods in, in, in places like Bangladesh. So if, if it wasn't a worldwide flood, then God lied. Because God said, I'd never send a flood like that flood again. So many reasons why it's not a local flood. It is a worldwide flood. But again... You're going to have scoffers. You're going to have mockers, even within the church, who question his coming, who question things like the creation, who question things like Noah's flood, who question things like the coming judgment. And most of them, not all of them, but most of them who are scoffing, again, going back up to verse 3, are being propelled or motivated by their evil, sinful lifestyle. Because... They don't want to think about coming judgment, because if there's coming judgment, that means they're going to have to be accountable for what they're doing, and they don't want to be accountable, so they just say, there's no God. I love the fact that it really doesn't bother God that human beings kick him out of their mind. It's not like God's up there going, oh man, you know. I mean, God still exists, 
His word is still true. Everything that he said in the Bible is going to happen, whether man believes it or not. I mean, every human being on the planet could turn their back on God and say the Bible is a bunch of trash. That doesn't negate that it's going to happen. Because it's going to happen because God said it. All right, verse 8. I'm going to stop here in a minute. I promise. Sorry, I'm, you know me, I get to preaching. Now, dear friends, here's another thing. Do not let the delay of God shake you. There's a reason for why God is delaying His coming. And it's not because He's impotent. It's not because He doesn't care. It's not because He can't do anything about it. There's a very good reason why God is delaying His coming. Do not let this one thing escape your notice that a single day is like a thousand years with the Lord and a thousand years are like a single day. First of all, time is relative with God. God's an eternal being. We're stuck in time. God is not. So what seems like an eternity of time to us, and that's why many times when God is wanting us to wait on something, it seems like forever. And God's like, oh, was that like a second ago? And it could have been like two years, you know. Because we're just so time, you know, wrapped in this time and looking at our watches and all of this. And God is above and beyond time. And the other thing I like to say is this too. Don't forget that in one 24-hour period as God, God experiences as God more in 24 hours than you and I will in an entire lifetime, even if we live to be a thousand years old. Because don't forget, as God, God sees every good thing that happens over this planet in a 24-hour period. He also sees every bad thing that happens over the whole earth in a 24-hour period. So God himself personally experiences the pain of every murder in this world in a 24-hour period, every rape, every ounce of abuse, every harsh word, anything that anybody does, God absorbs all that in a 24-hour period, and He experiences more in 24 hours than we would in a thousand years. And then, verse 9 says, And the Lord is not slow concerning His promise, as some regard slowness, but is being patient toward you, because He does not wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He's just given people more time to come to know Jesus. That's why he's not coming. People are looking at his delay as questioning whether he even exists, questioning his word, questioning all that. And here, the reason he's delaying is out of the goodness and love of his heart. He wants to bring people into a relationship with him. So the very thing that he's extending this time in order to bring more people into heaven, they're mocking him. They're shoving their fist in his face if they could. They're scoffing at him. And all the time, what's he doing? Just holding out his arm, just saying, I just want you to come to me. You can scoff and mock if you want to, but you're not going to go out into eternity unloved. I guarantee you that. Dear friends, I love you. I'm just, trying to re I'm just trying to give you time to figure this out so that you come into the kingdom. But don't think that God is going to delay forever. Because even like with the worldwide flood, God gave those people 120 years to listen to the message through Noah. 120 years. And then the Bible says God is the one who shut the door of the ark. Very interesting. If you read Genesis chapter 6, Noah didn't shut the door of the ark. 
The Bible says that Noah and his family went into the ark and God shut the door of the ark. Because you think, when that rain started and those floodwaters came up, how many people would have been screaming to get into that ark? And it was too late then. It was too late then, because God was saying, look, I, I give you time, but there's also a too late. There's also a time where it's too late, you see. So that's where he goes on to say in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come and it will come like a thief. And that phrase just simply means it's going to come suddenly. It's going to come unexpectedly. And Jesus, in fact, uses the parallel of the days of Noah and the days of Lot, those guys we talked about last week, in paralleling the last days. In fact, if I can remember where it's at real quick, give me a second, give me a second. Aha. Luke chapter 17. Please turn there. So remember, last week and even this week, what's Peter talking? Noah Lot. Noah Lot. Noah Lot. A lot of stuff there about those two guys. And there's a reason for that, because in the Bible, Jesus, Jesus himself used the days of Noah and the days of Lot to describe his coming as a thief, all right? Or unexpectedly or suddenly. Pick it up in verse 22. Chapter 17, then he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the son of man and you will not see it. Then people will say to you, look, there he is. Or look, here he is. Do not go out or chase after them. For just as like the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the son of man be in his day. In other words, Jesus is saying, if somebody tells you Jesus came, he's over there and you didn't see it, don't buy it. Because when he comes the next time, the whole world is going to see. So the, oh, Jesus came. In fact, I, I think I told you this last week. I, I had to start chuckling. You know, it's, it's sad that the other day I was in the grocery store and there was a, one of those paper tabloid things. I don't know whether you knew this or not, but Jesus Christ is coming this Christmas day. That's what it says. And you know, the sad, as I'm sitting there in the, and because I... It, I'm not going to blame Lisa for this. This is my fault. I always pick the slowest line. There could be 10 people in one grocery line and one in the other, and I pick the one, and then something happens to the cart or whatever. And I'm So I was standing there for a long time, and you wouldn't believe while I was standing there the people that I was noticing coming up, and out of all the mag, because you, you, you know all the magazines and stuff, they were going to that one. And they were, it's like they were, really, they were interested, like... Wow, Jesus is coming on Christmas Day. And I wanted to just go to them and just like open up second and go, don't you get it? It ain't going to happen that way, you know. Oh, well, it is. It's, it's, it's really sad. So notice he goes on to say, but first, verse 25, Jesus must suffer and the Messiah must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And then here it is. Verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so too it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage right up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. Now here's the point. First of all, God isn't down on eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage. He's not saying, hey, they were involved in all this terrible stuff. Here's the point he's trying to make. They were just involved in everyday life. They were, they were just involved in life. It was just life to them. But here's the key. It was life without any consciousness of God. Because the Bible even says that we can eat and drink to the glory of God. First, I like that verse. 
In fact, the Bible says we should eat and drink to the glory of God. So God's not anti-eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, all that. He's not. He's just simply saying, here's the problem. In the days of Noah, they were just going through their everyday life stuff of eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage, but without any consciousness of God until the rain came and destroyed them. And then notice, people, right after the day Noah entered the ark, then the flood came and destroyed them all. Verse 20, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, people were eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. Again, nothing bad about that stuff. But they were just going through the everyday average routine of life, and boom. And here's the point. The thief in the night. One of the questions I get asked is, well, when, when Jesus comes, is, is life going to be a lot different on the earth and all of that? No. The Bible basically says here, life's going to be just just like it always was. People are going to be involved in just all the things that they've always been involved with. The difference is, it's going to be all the things that they've ever done, but having no consciousness of God. None. And that's the problem. It's okay that we eat and drink and buy and sell and plan and build, as long as we do all that with God in mind and with a consciousness of God. But on the day, verse 29, Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be the same on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, anyone who's on the roof with his goods in his house must not come down to take them away and on and on and on. But I do want to point this out. Notice verse 32. Out of all the things that Jesus could have focused on with the whole Lot thing and the story of Lot and getting them out of Sodom and Gomorrah, Jesus didn't focus on all the people that were destroyed in Sodom and Gomorrah and even Lot and all that. He focused on Lot's wife. And notice in verse 32, it's one of the shortest verses in all the Bible besides Jesus wept, at least in the original language. Here's what Jesus said. Remember Lot's wife. And the reason why Jesus wants us to remember Lot's wife is because even though she, in a sense, was delivered out of Sodom, listen, even though she was delivered out of Sodom, Sodom had not been delivered out of her. You see, she physically was removed from Sodom, but her heart was still in Sodom. And that's why she looked back. And that's why Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. I mean, God... God can change our physical proximity and placement and, and we can run from problems and we can try to escape and we can say, like a lot of people do today, I had a bad time in Denver, I'm moving to Phoenix and I'm starting all over again. And I, look, I'm not against any of that, okay? But I'm just saying just to do that and say that somehow your problems and the situations you need to face and all of that because maybe what happened in Denver is still in here, and it has nothing to do with where we are physically. It has to do where's our heart at. And here's Lot's wife who had been miraculously by the angels of God delivered out of Sodom, but her heart was still there. And that's why she looked back. And so basically Jesus is saying it doesn't matter where we are physically as much as it does what is the condition of our heart. Remember Lot's wife. All right, back to Second Peter. So 2 Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. When it comes, the heavens will disappear then with a horrific noise and the celestial bodies or stars will melt away in a blaze in the earth and every deed done on it will be laid bare. You want to talk about a firework display. And we're going to be there to see it. And it's not going to harm us in any way because we're going to be part of the new heaven and the new earth that Peter's going to talk about here in just a few minutes. But anyway, 
Here's the deal. Why do we have to keep growing? We have to keep growing because we are living now in a climate, even within what we call Christianity or the church or whatever church people or whatever, where even there we're going to encounter not just in the world of people who don't want to have anything to do with God, but we're going to encounter scoffers and mockers and people who are questioning the Bible and people who are questioning the existence of God and questioning creation and questioning Noah's flood and questioning, obviously, the coming judgment. Because if, if they can remove all that, then like I said, then they can go on living their life their merry way, however they want to live, and never have to worry about giving an account of their life to anybody, especially to God, you see. So we just kick him out of our little brains and he doesn't exist and I become an atheist or an agnostic. All right, I'm going to stop right there for now. Does anybody have any questions? I know I've said some pretty hard things, but I'm just sharing with you what I believe, what I believe God's laid on my heart. Yeah, the media is great. Oh, yeah, did you hear about Elton John? Yeah. Yeah. All organized religion should be done away with. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And there again is that whole thing that they throw Jesus that bone. You know, I respect the teachings of Jesus. Well, if you respected the... Jesus would say, well, then if you love me, keep my commandments. You know? And you can't have it both ways. You can't, as, and Elton John is just another one in the long line of people that I've run into in, in the Bible who they don't want to accept Christ and they don't buy into the fact that He's God and He's the Savior and all that, but they still hold on to the fact that He's a good person. And like people like Lee Strobel and Josh McDowell and others have said, look, you can't have it that way because Jesus claimed to be God. That's what got Him hung on the cross. So you can't say he was a good person because good people don't go around lying claiming to be God if they're not. So to, again, it, it's a totally inconsistent thing. For, to, for, them to be, for them to be consistent, the thing that Elton John or anybody else should say is, I'm not only against organized religion, I think Jesus Christ was a crackpot. I would actually have more respect for them because it's like, okay, you're at least being consistent. Because he can't be a good person and you believe his teachings if he went around teaching that I'm the Messiah, you need to believe in me and I'm accepting your worship and I'm God and I'm going to go to the cross and die for the sins of the world and all this. I mean, either it's one or the other. You can't have it both ways. You can't reject Jesus, but then say over here, yeah, but he was a good person, a good, he was a prophet. He, I, I, I buy his teaching. He, he just, yeah, totally inconsistent. Don't get me started. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. They 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 basically say that they, you know, for the sake of having to live with all of us dumb people, that they are willing to place themselves in the year 2006 because they understand, you know. But they really don't buy it. Yeah, they really don't buy it. Well, and just like for those of you that were uh, here a couple of weeks ago when I did the behind the veil thing, looking at the religion of Islam and what Muslims believe. Muslims believe it's only 1,400 and something. Because remember, in the Muslim calendar, they don't date things by Jesus Christ. They date things by the coming of Muhammad and the teachings that Muhammad laid down. So if you talk to a Muslim, 
they're not going to say it's 2006. They're going to say it's 1411 or something to them in their calendar. Yeah. So at least, again, they're consistent because they don't buy the Jesus Christ thing at all as far as that goes. I'm telling you, it's confusing down here. What day is it? Exactly. Now, here's the deal. Prophecy, and this is why I tell people, I said, look, the reason to study prophecy is not to learn all this information about the end times just for the sake of learning all the information about the end times. As I've said a bazillion times in here in the mind, I know people who know all the beasts in Revelation and they act like it too. And it's not a question, it's not a question of learning all this information about last things and having no impact on way, the way I live here and now. So Peter wants to make a very important connection. He says, so if you believe all this stuff that I'm talking about is going to come down one day, then notice what he says in chapter 3, verse 11. Since all these things are to melt away in this manner, what sort of people must we be conducting our lives in holiness and godliness while waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. In other words, he's simply saying to study prophecy for prophecy's sake doesn't cut it. But if you're studying prophecy and what's going to happen in the future, and you believe what God says about the future, then if you truly believe that, it's going to have a positive effect on how you and I live our lives here and now. Because for people to say, again, inconsistent, oh yeah, I believe Jesus is coming back one day. Yeah, I believe in His kingdom. Yeah, I believe in a heaven and a hell. and I, I believe all that. But then you look at the way they live, and they live such a, I don't care about God life. You're like, well, where's the consistency there? And that's what Peter just simply pointed out. If you truly believe these things, then it should have an effect upon the way you live your life every day because you and I understand things aren't always going to be this way. And God is going to mightily intervene one day in this world. Things aren't always going to continue, continue, continue. And, and I'm part of this coming kingdom and this glory that Jesus Christ is going to bring. Shouldn't that motivate me to want to live my life for God as much as I possibly can and be a committed Christian? Well, it should. So again, it goes back to, do you really believe it? Do you really? Because if you and I really, really believe what we're reading here, then Peter says it's going to have a positive effect upon your life here and now. It's not just going to be for the by and by. Now notice, because of this day, the heavens will be burned up and dissolved, and the celestial bodies will melt away in a blaze. But according to His promise, and again, that's what we base it on, His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness truly resides. Wow. Can't wait for that day. God promised a new day is coming. God is saying, hey, things aren't always going to be this bad. <laughs> you know, I'm coming to the rescue. I'm going to right every wrong. I'm going to turn everything upside down. We're, we're going we're gonna to rebuild the heavens and the earth. We're, with fire, going to destroy the old heaven and the old earth. We're going to rebuild the heaven and the earth. And in that new heaven and that new earth, only righteous. It's almost like we're coming full circle. We're going back to the Garden of Eden, where God wanted it this way, way back with Adam and Eve. And we're going to go back there to that perfect environment before sin ever entered in. That's the way it's going to be one day. In fact... 
Again, notice verse 14. He's tying in then what we believe is coming with our present behavior. And he says, therefore, dear friends, since you are waiting for these things, strive to be found at peace without spot or blemish when you come into his presence. Make sure that what you believe about what's coming is affecting the way you and I live here and now. And certainly the fact that hopefully we're coming into his presence an awful lot. And that we remember he loves us. He loves us no matter what. And so, okay, even if we do fail or we fall, we can get right back up and we can flood into His presence because we know that He loves us unconditionally. There is nothing we can do that's going to cause God to love us any less than what He does now. And there's nothing we could do positively to get Him to love us any more than He does right now. So remember, dear friends, you are beloved of God. And then, verse 15, and regard the patience of our Lord again as salvation. Regard the fact that God is just delaying His coming so that people have time to hear about Jesus and come into the kingdom. He loves people. He wants to have a relationship with them. He wants them to go to heaven. So He's just given us time as the church to get out there and to tell people about Jesus and to go on missions trips. And let me just say this, and I didn't plan on saying this, but I'm going to plug... Man, if you, if you have any opportunity at all to go to New Orleans or go to Africa, go. Go. We got Travis in here tonight who just got back from Belize. He's one of the folks that went from our church. To, if you want to talk to somebody who went on a short-term mission trip and who will tell you it was worth it, it changed his life, Travis is right, right there. He'll tell you. Go. If you can, go. And, and listen... Our missions body here at Cornerstone is planning like five or six missions trips in the next two to three years. We're going to go to Europe, somewhere in Europe, Africa, you know, different places. So you're going to have opportunities here at Cornerstone to go. And wouldn't it be cool someday when you get to heaven to see somebody walk up from another nation and say, I'm here because you came and your group told us about Jesus. I mean, that's just... And that's what he's saying. Listen, I'm giving Christians time to get out there and share the gospel. And don't be ashamed of the gospel. Romans chapter 1, verse 8, it's the power of God unto salvation. It works. Now, I'll say this. One of the reasons why Jesus compared fishing of men to fishing is because sometimes you have to fish all day before you catch something. You know, being a good fisherman means you've got to be patient. I remember going to this fishing rodeo when I was a child. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I finally caught this catfish after about 10 hours. And the poor thing was dead when I caught it. It just, you know, oh, boy. But I think the thing that Jesus was saying there is, you know what, sometimes as being fishers of men, you know, here's here's what we do as Christians. We go out and we, we share the gospel with one person and they say no and then we just throw up our hands and say, oh, I'm not doing that anymore. <laughs> and God's saying, well, wait a minute. Would you do that if you were fishing? If you're going to be a fisher, you're going to have to have some persistence and endurance. And that first time that somebody says no, are you just going to give up and quit? Look, you and I are not responsible for their response. So take yourself off the hook. 
God does not hold you and I responsible for their response. All He holds us responsible for is just when we have the opportunity to share Jesus, to just share Him. The response is between them and God. God doesn't... When I get to heaven, God's not going to say, Now, Jeff, you know, how come you didn't have more people respond to your messages? God's not going to say that. All God's going to say is, Were you faithful to my word and did you give it out? The response is up to you all. It's up to other Same thing. You go and you, you share Jesus with somebody and they say no. You've done, you've done what you were supposed to do. Don't feel bad that they said no. You might have to share Jesus with 25 people before one shows any interest. That's okay. It's just being faithful to our calling. And our calling is to go into all the world and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the calling. Not how many people we can get there, but just to share. Because remember what the Bible says, and here's where we have to get back to a biblical perspective. The Bible says some of us plant as Christians, some of us water, and others actually reap the crop. So that, for instance, just to use... Three years ago, before I ever moved out here, Mike could have shared Jesus with somebody. And then somewhere along the line, God worked it out that that person got to have a conversation with Eric, and Eric shared Jesus with that person. Now, I haven't accepted Christ yet, but Mike was faithful to share Jesus when he had the opportunity. Eric shared Jesus with me. And then somewhere along the line, Travis had an opportunity to share Jesus. And then it could just be that I had the opportunity some Sunday that they come here to Cornerstone, and oh, by the way, they check, they check on their card, I, w- I want to nail this down. I, I w- and so I just happened to be there to be able to, in a sense, lead them to the Lord. Did I do anything? No, it wasn't me. It was God all along. But guess what? I just happened to be the last in a long line of guys or gals who were faithful in sharing. And that's the way it works sometimes. So don't get discouraged either if you go out there sharing Jesus and they say no to you. It may take five or six or ten or twenty people in their life to come into their life and point them to the same direction before it's like, you know what, there must be something to this because everybody who's coming into my life is pointing me to Jesus. Okay, and then I love this part. Verse 15, and so, regard the patience of our Lord of salvation. This is going to be very encouraging to you. I know it is, so hang in there with me. Just as also our dear brother Paul wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him, again, it wasn't his wisdom, it was the wisdom God gave him, speaking of these things in all his letters, and I love what Peter, now this is the Apostle Peter. Look at what he says about Paul's letters. Some things in these letters are hard to understand. Amen! <laughs> I have Christians sometimes who come up to me and say, Pastor Jeff, some of this is hard to understand. I say, guess what? It was for Peter too. It's okay. Some of it's hard to understand. Hang in there. Keep studying. It's okay. We're not going to get it all. You know, it's not like when you start studying the Bible and reading the Bible, it's just going to all of a sudden, all these light bulbs are just going to... It takes time. Some people say, well, Jeff, how do, you, how do you know what you know? Well, first of all, it's been like 30 plus years that I've been studying the Bible for probably about six to seven hours a day. I mean, I hope something's stuck in there somewhere along the line. It takes time. And then I tell people, listen, the more I study the Bible, the more I realize I don't know. You know, because the more you think you know, you know I, man, I never knew that before. And you just, you keep learning all the time. It's okay Don't get discouraged when you read and study the Bible that there's some things hard to understand. 
Go back to 2 Peter 3.16 and go, oh yeah, Peter had some hard stuff to understand too. And then I love this though. Things that are hard to understand, but that doesn't give us the right to twist those things to fit, again, what we want it to say. And notice Peter says some things in these letters are hard to understand that Paul wrote. Things that the ignorant and unstable, or we could even say scoffers and mockers, twist. And that's literally what the word in the original language means. They twist the scriptures to suit what they want the scriptures to say. That's why I tell people, in studying the Bible, there's only one right interpretation. There are many different applications, but there's only one right interpretation. God doesn't contradict himself. And here's a good rule of thumb to use when you interpret the Bible. If that verse makes sense, seek no further sense. If it makes sense, seek no further sense. That, that's like one of the first things you learn in interpreting the Bible. So don't try to find some hidden meaning somewhere when there's no hidden meaning to be found. If that's what it says and it makes sense, that's what it meant. Now when you come to a passage where Jesus says, I am the door, again, I think we realize by studying the Bible, Jesus didn't mean he was this piece of wood with a handle on it. There is something a little bit deeper than that that doesn't just make sense. So again, as you study the Bible, you figure it out. But these people twist the Scriptures. And notice, Peter very... And they do it to their own destruction. You start messing around with the Scriptures, you start twisting them to, to you know, let them what you... Because here's what, here's what we do. We say, this is what I believe, and then we go to the Bible to try to prove that what we believe is right, rather than saying... I'm going to let the Bible dictate to me what's right, and I'm just going to let the Bible speak to me. And I'm not going to go to the Bible, and I'm not going to read it and study it with my own sort of way I think it needs to be, and then try to find verses that fit that. Because, folks, if that's the way it is, you'll always find verses that you can twist. and say, See, the Bible teaches that you can do this. And you, you could prove anything, and you could justify anything in the Bible, if you want to, by twisting the Scriptures. But if you do it, Peter says, you and I are going to do it to our own destruction. Let the Bible speak for itself. And let the Bible determine our theology rather than coming to the Bible with our theology and trying to find verses that back up our theology. Here's a huge point. So many good things in here that people can miss. Notice at the end of verse 16, to their own destruction they twist the Scriptures, as they also do to the rest of the Scriptures. And notice there, a very huge thing, that Peter, in Second Peter, is saying that Paul's writings are what? Scripture. You see, even back then, it had already been acknowledged that some of Paul's letters were acknowledged as Scripture. Even back then. I know, you didn't know that was in there, did you? See, that's why we got our, even those verses at the end of the book, that's like, oh, I'll stop after chapter 2, I ain't reading chapter 3. There's a lot of good stuff in chapter 3. Now, here's the end. And remember, these were the last words that Peter ever said that were Scripture. And last words are really important. 
And we've talked so much in this study about how important it is that we grow. And so notice again, here's where Peter lands at the very end of the book. He says, therefore. And what does therefore mean when we study the Bible? Everything we've talked about up to that point, we've got to bring it along because the word therefore is being, what he's going to say now is being based on the foundation of chapter 3, verse 1, all the way up through. Therefore. Because all those things are going to happen, dear friends, remember God loves you, since you have been forewarned, and that's what the word literally means, and I just want to stop again and say, folks, here's the character of God throughout the Bible. God always forewarns His people, and even those who aren't His people, before judgment falls or before something happens. Just like I said, Noah's a great example of that. The flood didn't just come and all those people, I didn't have a chance to get on the ark. They had 120 years to make a decision to get on the ark. So when people say, God in the Old Testament, it seems like he's such a, because we, we get these questions a lot, it seems like the God of the Old Testament is such a cruel God and such a wrathful God and he's always judging and lightning and yeah. Look. He was just as patient and merciful in the Old Testament as he was in the New. He gave people in Sodom and Gomorrah time to repent before the judgment ever came. He gave people in Noah's day 120 years to figure it out before judgment came. He always forewarns his own people before something's going to happen. So God always gives people so that people can't say, I didn't know. Nobody's going to ever be able to stand before God and go, ah. I didn't know, God. didn't tell me. I, God's going to say, I forewarned you. I told you ahead of time what was going to happen. You just didn't believe it, and you didn't put it into practice. So Peter says, since you've been forewarned, be on your guard. And that's what we've talked about throughout this book. The reason why we've got to keep growing? Because we've got to be on our guard. There's so much unbiblical Teaching and preaching and books out there today that don't line up with God's Word. If you, if you study what they teach and then you study the Bible, it doesn't line up. And they're on radio, they're on television, they write books, they're in bookstores. It's all over the place. So be on your guard that you do not get led astray by the error of these unprincipled men and fall from your firm grasp on the truth. You see, I love the illustration that he uses. He's saying, here's what God wants to do in our life. God wants to bring stability. God wants us to be stable. And so, again, sort of using a, a sports illustration, which the Bible does a lot, because Paul especially, but Peter picks up on this whole wrestling thing. One of the things a good wrestler is going to do, and don't forget the Bible says it in our spiritual warfare, what's it say? We wrestle not against flesh and blood but against powers of the darkness. In wrestling, the thing is, you, you want to knock your opponent off balance so you can take him to the mat and pin him. The whole thing about wrestling is balance and you know, stability and whatever. And so he's using that illustration here spiritually. He's saying God wants you to be stable. He wants you to have a firm foundation. Jesus said, you need to build your life upon me and I'm the rock. You know, God wants it to be stable. Satan wants us to be unstable. Satan wants us to be tossed and fro, back and forth. Satan wants us to be like the waves on the ocean, just, you know, seasick Christians. 
Satan wants us to be totally unstable, just not knowing where we're going and whatever. God wants us to be stable. And so he says, when we buy into false doctrine and to these teachings, we're not only being led away, but we are going to fall from that stability. And even as a Christian, I'm going to not be as stable as I could be because I have bought in to teaching that's causing instability in my life. So here's a good rule of thumb. Whatever is of God, as far as teaching goes, is something that God wants to use in your life to bring stability. Whatever is not of God that comes into your life is going to provide instability. Instability. God wants us to be stable. He wants us to be steadfast. He wants us to be firm, grounded in Him. Or as Psalm 1 would say, the blessed man is the one who has his roots down deep, planted like a a tree by the rivers of water, whose leaf prospers and all of that in season, out of season. It's all about stability. So if you're feeling a little unstable and whatever, Check out what you what your belief is and what you're buying into and what you're grasping at and what you're focusing on. Because if you're focusing on the right things and your life is truly anchored in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to be stable. And then verse 18. How does he end? What's his last exhortation? Grow. The best way to keep stable and keep your footing underneath of you so that you don't get knocked around and knocked off balance by Satan or whatever, is to keep growing. And I love this. Notice it's two areas. He says, grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hang in here with me. Very important. Very cool. The knowledge tells me what to do and how to do it Alright, that's the knowledge part. But the grace part gives me the power to do it. That's why you need both. That's why sometimes you have people who know the Bible, but all that does for them is just make them more intelligent sinners. Because they've got the knowledge, but they're not growing in grace. And it's the grace that enables them to put into practice what they're learning in their head. And that's why you've got to have a balance in your life as a Christian. You've got to be growing in grace and in knowledge. It, it does no good for us to fill our minds with all these Bible verses and facts and truth if we're not growing in the grace to be able to put into practice and to apply what we're learning. And knowledge that we gain primarily comes from our study of God's Word. Where does our grace come from? Our prayer life. Primarily. And that's why, again, it goes back to what's the two basics of the Christian life? Our relationship to the Bible and our prayer life. Because in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, let me give you a reference here for, for the grace part as far as prayer. The writer of Hebrews says, let's come boldly unto the throne of grace that we might find help in time of need. Or when Paul got the thorn in his flesh and said, God, take it away, what did God say? My grace is sufficient for you. My grace will enable you to deal with that thorn and to handle that thorn and to rise above that thorn. So the grace of God is not just His 
unmerited favor towards us who believe in Jesus Christ. It is also the power to do what God is asking us to do. And God will always give us the grace along with the knowledge. God will never lead us to knowledge without also giving us the, innate, the, the ability to get the grace too to do it. So that if God says, I want you to love your enemies, God will also give us the grace to love our enemies. If God says, you know, go into the world and preach the gospel, God will give us the grace to go into the world and preach the gospel. If God says, don't be anxious about anything, but pray about everything, God will give us the grace to pray rather than to worry. Whatever God is asking us to do in knowledge, He will give us the grace to put into practice. And that's why we've got to grow in both. And we grow primarily through the Bible and through our prayer life. Very important. Grow, grow, grow. That's why the mind is... That's why we at church offer Bible studies like this. Because we want people to grow. Because the best way to remain stable in these difficult days with all these false teachers and false teaching and scoffers and mockers and all of that is to continue to grow. Continue to grow. And then, of course, he ends with, to him be honor both now and on that eternal day. Grow, grow, grow. Never stop growing. Never stop growing. Questions? I could go for another hour, but I won't. I yes. The word's the word. Yep. That's a great point. It's a great point. Yeah. Another just thought about it's religion versus relationship. Yeah, and religion will change due to the culture and the changing times to adapt to whatever's down the pike. Where God's word, if you read the Psalms, what's God's word say in the Psalms? Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in the heavens. It's stable. It's there. It's not going to change. God's not up there going, but... But they don't like that anymore. Okay, God will change it. You know, God's not going to do that. He's not going to do that. God knows what's best. Yes. Biblical. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's a great question. Can I tell and, and I hope this doesn't upset anybody. I hope you understand that this is just reality. I'm just going to, because I think, I think this is, needs to be answered this way. And, and I'm not saying this in a negative way. If our whole staff here at Cornerstone sat down and tried to even compile a list of what we consider to be recommended over things that we wouldn't recommend, we wouldn't agree with each other. And that's what makes it difficult. That's what makes it difficult. Oh, yeah, I've debated some false prophets. Uh, I guess the best thing I could tell you there, and it's a great question, is that one of the things we're going to try to do, and I know this doesn't immediately help, but when we move over in a new building... We're not only going to have a much bigger cafe, but we're going to have a much bigger Christian bookstore ourselves right here at Cornerstone. And, and the books that we will have in there, I would say, for the most part, are going to be what we deem to be good, solid books that we would say we put our stamp of approval on them. And that doesn't mean that there aren't good books out there that we haven't included there, but the ones that we have, I think you could be pretty, pretty safe with that. It, because to be honest with you, I, I could take you like to Amazing Grace or Berean or any of those, and it would take me a long time to say, well, I, I'd, I'd be careful with that author. I'd watch what they say about that topic. I, it is. It's, it's just woven throughout so many different things. It really is. It, it, it's just why we have to just be very careful and why we have to study the Word of God and go back and make sure this is what we believe the Bible teaches. That we are fully, as Paul says in Romans 15, we're fully persuaded in our own mind that that's what the Bible teaches. And we're not believing something because somebody else said it. 
we're believing it because we came to that conclusion ourselves by our own study. Yeah, which is what Lynn and Ron and all those, you know, recommend here. Me too. Good stuff though. Yes. Yeah, there's three heavens in the Bible. There's the first heaven is sort of the atmosphere where the birds fly. There's the second heaven that we would call space where our astronauts go. The third heaven is where God dwells. And that's why the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 12, when Paul says, I was caught up to the third heaven, he was actually caught up to what we call heaven. But technically in the Bible, there are three heavens. There's the atmosphere, there's space, and then there's (laughs) we out there. Hey guys, I'd love to talk another hour, but I need to shut up and let you guys go home. Hey, you guys are great. I hope you have a great Thanksgiving next week. Have a great Thanksgiving, and I hope to see you all back here on the 28th of November. Thank you guys. You're great.